but it's still surreal as you're coming in to the finish of something that's so big and you're actually thinking oh my god I've done this to see that the people who've been with you all along the journey you know sobbing as you're coming in it's it's quite emotional Hello and welcome to No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, traveling and adventure. This episode is sponsored by Great Outdoors, Ireland's premier outdoor retailer. You will find them online at www.greatoutdoors.ie. You will also find all the previous episodes of the podcast on greatoutdoors.ie. In this episode, I'm joined by Anne Jennings. Anne Jennings is an ultra runner from County Mayo living in Dublin. Prior to this year, there were only two female finishers from Ireland in the Spartathlon, which runs 246 kilometers from Athens to Sparta. The first being Diana Nugent back in 1998. Then more recently, we had Bridget Brady in 2016. Then in this year, we had two finishers from Ireland, one being Leanne Reeve and the second being Anne Jennings. And welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thank you. Joanne, first of all, give us a little bit of your background, how you got involved in running. I would have done a small bit of running in secondary school. My main, I suppose, sports that I was interested in was Gaelic. So I would have played quite a lot of Gaelic. Went in some school All-Irelands, then went on after that and played rugby for Ashburn. I had to give that up. Unfortunately, I had to have surgery. So I had to find an alternative sport. So I decided I'd give running a shot. So that went from doing no exercise to running from a lamppost to a lamppost and uh, getting me to where I am today. You started ultra running back in 2014. When did you actually take up running? I would have ran my first 10k first race ever in 2012, the Great Ireland Run, with a friend of mine who convinced me to do it. And that same year then I leapt in and ran my first marathon, been Dublin City Marathon. And then in 2014, you did the Waterfront Ultra Marathon down in Clonakilty, is that right? Yeah, so that would have been, I suppose, my first ultra as such, and it kind of continued from there. What made you go from a marathon to the ultra marathon? I suppose I was curious. I was curious to see, you know, what was next or what you could do or what the body could do, or what the mind could do. So I suppose I tried out a, a distance that was safe enough over marathon distance and yeah, found a love for it. And what another reason being that you joined a club and you got in with some bad company? <laughs> Could have been a lot of that too. <laughs> so from 2014, you've done approximately 22 ultramarathons and they vary in distance from 39 miles to the time-based 24-hour race. And most recently, as we said, you did the Spartathlon in Greece. What made you pick the Spartathlon? Well, I suppose I was I was fascinated by it once I heard about it. And I obviously knew a, f- a few that had how I'd done it so the likes of Rolando Espino and Anthony Lee uh, who I would be friends with and run quite a bit with anyways so I suppose they kind of twisted my arm into applying for it. Now that race has a dropout rate of over 50% so going into the race you probably knew that there was a good chance you weren't going to finish it. Yeah 100% knew that yeah. So what made you want to take part in a race that you thought you might finish? Now, the reason I'm asking that is because in ultra running terms, you've only been running ultra since 2014. The Spartathlon is quite a big race. You wouldn't have the same experience as a lot of the other competitors. Like I did it myself, but it was after maybe 10, 15 years of training. Yeah, maybe that's the stubborn Mayo head I have. I don't know. I, I knew there was a huge dropout rate, but I suppose was a bigger driver for me to try it. For me, it was getting to that line, getting the start, having the nerve to get to that start line and just go from checkpoint to checkpoint and see what would happen. 
And did you know that before you went over there that there had only been two female finishers from Ireland? I didn't know that the facts I had I had heard all right that there, there there was maybe two or three I wasn't too sure but it was it was great to go over as one of the kind of the first few that were going to try it and complete it. Can you tell me a little bit about the race for anybody that doesn't know? How can you say it's an amazing race? So you're going from Athens to Sparta, 246 kilometers. You go through every type of scenic route you can see going from motorways at the start through mountains through dirt trails through villages it's just one of a kind you know and the smelly oil refinery yes <laughs> i felt like i was um part of the ozone layer by the time we got a marathon point in it now even though there are regular checkpoints and aid stations along the route it's still not enough to ensure a stress-free experience in a race of this distance Plus, there's also the environmental factors that it's not possible for you to train for. How did you deal with that in your mind when you were standing at the start line? You knew that you were going into that. I suppose it, it was quite strange because my mind at that start line was very calm. I hadn't put any pressure on myself. It was a case of you're here, you're going to try this. 50% of these people standing with you aren't going to finish. And are you going to be one of them? So I decided to break it up into 75 mini runs. And just get from one to the next to the next. And that's kind of how I I started off to deal with it. Plus, I was there. There was four of us trying to run together. So, you know, I was in good company. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that could be debatable. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll talk about that another day. A support crew was very important for a race like this. How many people did you have with you? And how did they actually cope with the race? So I suppose I would have had two. So I would have had my husband, Andrew, and I would have had Dee Boland with me. So Anta would have had two as well. And we had another couple who came over as well just to experience it. I suppose, unfortunately, when Anto pulled out, I had everybody crewing, including Anto. And for them, it, it's a journey, you know, it, it's heartache for them. And I suppose it's stressful. And I suppose particular stages is stressful, too, in terms of the likes of going on the mountain or seeing me tired I suppose especially for people who are so close to you and, and they want you to finish and you kind of forget when you're running that they've actually been up the same amount of time and they mightn't be sleeping you know and they're doing everything they can to get you through it's like I don't know if you can see that turtle that I'm wearing it Charlotte Carney bought them for us all the night before and I you know still wear it kind of a lucky charm it's just small things inspirational signs that people wrote the likes of my daughters got in touch with loads of people like the happy pair Jedward body coach friends family and and did a whole video of good luck messages and they were played as well throughout checkpoints so it's accumulation of that but to get to the finish of Sparta and see your whole crew there crying that just shows you it's worth it it just shows what they've been through with you and the journey and it's it's about a journey and I couldn't have done it without them you know now when the race started did you instantly fit into your own race plan or did you get caught up in the rush at the start no still we stayed stayed well at the back didn't get caught up in it and as you know yourself it's kind of like a cattle march to begin so just held back and just got into the suppose the groove of a nice comfortable running pace we had known that it was going to be quite hot that day and it already was warm starting off so it was just a case of of settling in and 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 just finding a, a pace that you're comfortable at and just keep moving from there you run a lot of marathons so the marathon distance is very familiar to you how far into this race did you get before you started to know that you're going to really, really have to pace yourself and concentrate a lot more on your nutrition and hydration? 
I suppose for me, I was throwing a curveball at about 12 to 13 miles because my feet started to give way. Something I hadn't really experienced too much of before and certainly didn't think it was going to happen at that stage of the race. So I could feel the burning on my feet and I could feel blisters starting, which I suppose was beginning to get into my head that if it was at that stage, how I would be further on into it. And how did you cope with that? What got you to the next checkpoint? Well, I suppose you don't see your crew until marathon point. So I knew that at least if I got to there, I could change socks. I could have a look and see what was going on with my feet. And I suppose at the checkpoints along the way, there was a lot of sponges, a lot of ice. It was kind of a slightly chaotic. So people were kind of throwing water over you. So my feet were soaked, which I wasn't expecting. So for me, it was get to that marathon point and get the feet back together and go from there. Plus, at the early part of the race, you don't have as much time to spend the checkpoints. So if you're looking at changing your shoes and socks, a bit of panic can start to set in. And that's when mistakes happen. Shoelaces done too tight or you might have a crumply sock that's going to cause you more problems. Were you calm and relaxed or did you panic? No. Unfortunately, the I suppose the first crew point was it was a panic station as such so as you know yourself there's everybody's crew is there now lucky enough our crew kind of had picked us out and and directed us to the car but I suppose they were looking to feed me at that point where I was saying okay you need to sort my feet so it was a case my feet were sorted my stomach unfortunately didn't get sorted so from there to when you meet your crew next which is at the kind of 50 mile mark that was a kind of a stressful time because I knew I hadn't eaten enough and I didn't have enough with me. My focus had purely gone on my feet to get them sorted, you know. Now, you're going to step back a little bit now when you mentioned you didn't eat enough then. Did you have a breakfast before you started the race? Yes. And what did you have? I would have had porridge, banana, coffee, revive active, you know, that type of thing. That's me. And say the night before the race, what time did you go to bed at and what time did you eat before you went to bed? So I'd eaten roughly around, we went out for dinner maybe around 8 o'clock and then I would guess I was in bed around 10 o'clock in the normal kind of an hour of a chill out and try and get some sleep in. As you know yourself, the night before race you don't sleep well anyways, so I slept relatively okay. So you started the race then fully fueled, which is good, so that probably got you through that first bit of a bump. I knew I'd be fine to that point anyways, I don't tend to get hungry anyways during, I suppose, that distance of marathon point but it was to make sure there was enough in the tank to keep me going from there now you mentioned the 80k checkpoint which is a 50 mile that's one of the key checkpoints on the race that if you don't make that in time you're out yeah so there is quite a tight time limit to that and it gets a little bit more generous after that did you leave that checkpoint with enough time to comfortably continue the race no it was tight i suppose um i wasn't going to let the timings of checkpoints get into my head so we'll say when we got to that checkpoint unfortunately my feet again were causing me serious issues so I was kind of getting you're sure you want to keep going with how bad your feet are and I said listen just do whatever it takes I don't care just get them sorted and get me moving again so I suppose I kind of had a determination at that stage I wasn't really focused on the tightness at the time it was just get moving get get refueled get your feet sorted and get get back out you mentioned you were running with yeah. Anthony Lee and a few others. Anthony had to drop out. At what point did he drop out of the race? So he dropped out at about 150k, just shy of the 100 miles. So that was tough. 
worked, we had trained so much together and ran so much of it together. And I suppose with my feet, I suppose I had to walk a bit of it that I didn't really want to be walking at that point, but I had no choice. So Anto's knee was was at him and he was getting to the point where I suppose he knew the cutoffs were tight and he might make them and he couldn't run uphill or downhill at that stage so that was a tough call I decided to run on to the checkpoint where we were meeting our crew and just prep them to say that he was in trouble so I left him with maybe a kilometer left to that checkpoint and ran on told them just to be ready for him to come in and I, I, I waited with my crew I don't know for a few minutes just to see would he come in but I was told look you need to keep going so I did. Did you know that he had dropped out? I had found out that the next checkpoint he had dropped out yeah. So what coping strategies did you use to stop yourself from dropping out because the pain in your feet and now you had something else to deal with mentally so at this point you were on your own? Yeah, I was on my own. I suppose it was dark. You were running through those roads that you know quite well. That can be lonely. What I didn't have, I never thought about dropping out. You know, that didn't enter my head. I said, no, we have both worked hard. I've worked hard for this. Just keep go- keep moving. And I said to crew, OK, I'm going to take this checkpoint by checkpoint now. This is how I'm going to do it, you know. So, yeah, it was tough, but yeah, I had to do it. You mentioned uh, your stomach wasn't great during the race. Were you feeling that you were going to have to throw up or was it just a bit of discomfort no stomach was okay I think it was initially the first 80 kilometers where I I just didn't feel it I feel myself enough just because other issues took over but my stomach generally held up it was good actually so once I kind of got back on track with that and once the, the nighttime set in and the heat which didn't go down too much during the night but my feet I suppose were were coping better with the uh, lower temperatures and how was your hydration? Did you have any problems with, with drinking during the race? No, hydration went well, which was good. You know, plenty of zeros and just kept sipping away, you know. Was there a point in the race that you felt that you might not finish it? There was a couple of points. One of them being when you take that lovely left turn to go up to the top of that mountain, as you know yourself, and you're on a, a rough path at the edge of a mountain. That was one of them. And then when you go through the kind of the industrial fields, which is probably... I don't know, you're there the next morning, you're there on Saturday morning. At that stage, my once the sun came up, my feet started throbbing again. I was concerned that I might make the checkpoint. It wasn't that I wanted to drop out. It was just a concern that I wouldn't physically make it. When I got to the far side of that mountain that you're talking about there, it was quite a climb at night time. But when I came down the far side, that's when I started to suffer. And I had my first hallucinations during the race. Did you have any hallucinations? No, no hallucinations. No, I was, I suppose, a little bit sleepy, maybe with about 30k to go, but otherwise, no. Now, you mentioned feeling a bit sleepy, as well as the obvious challenges that a distance of 246 kilometers will present. That's also another challenge, the sleep deprivation. And there's also changes that happen to your emotional state. How did you deal with that? Were you, did you feel lonely, homesick, any of those feelings? No, to be honest, I was quite nervous going into the race about being on my feet. I knew I would be on my feet for that length of time anyways. And because I hadn't gone over a 24 hour distance, I was thinking of that 12 hours and how I would react to it. I didn't know it was unknown for me. But no, I didn't really feel emotion. I didn't feel, I suppose, teary or I didn't feel homesick or I want to go to bed. I suppose I had this, I suppose, drive in me that that came through and you speak about how you come down that mountain so when I was coming down that mountain I suppose that's where I found another gear in me and I I suppose came to the checkpoint where your crew was sitting there like some of my crew were crying when I went up that mountain and they sat on the wall waiting for me 
to come down off the mountain in floods of tears because they knew how vulnerable I would be. So I suppose a lot of, of, I suppose, their passion came through me as well, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Yeah. Now, can you tell us a bit about the kit that you used during the race? So what I was wearing? What you were wearing, yeah, and more importantly, your running shoes. Running shoes. So I would have worn Wave Horizons Mizuno. That's what I always wear. I'm not superstitious about having to wear one thing or another. Decathlon kit is what I wore. We had lovely t-shirts supplied by RunLogic helped us out. And we had pop-up braces print our t-shirts. And Billy Holden, obviously, our, our sunglasses. So we're very lucky in that sense. But generally stayed in the same kit, stayed in the same runners. Just socks and t-shirt chains and tried to keep covered as much as I could. And did you carry a backpack or were you using handheld water? Didn't carry a backpack, no. I would have had trail shorts on with numerous pockets so you can kind of fit the trail flasks into them. Yeah, I did something myself because I I find that when you're in a hot environment, if you have a bag on your back, the sweat as the heat is trying to leave your body gets trapped between you and and the backpack. Yeah. There is a need for it sometimes, but not when you have access to a support crew and numerous aid stations. Plus, it's easier if you have something in your hand or close to you in a pocket, there's more chance you're going to use it without without thinking about it. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. At what point then did you realise, I have this now, I'm going to finish? I probably realised that when you get to that final little checkpoint of whatever it is, 2.2k left. And I suppose it doesn't matter if somebody tells you you have this or not. You know yourself, you leave your crew with 10k to go and that's an emotional checkpoint. But I was still trying to work out in my head, in my tired head, will I make this? And you know yourself, you're trying to calculate and you can't. Yeah, I know what you mean because you know that there's such a high dropout rate. And in my case, before I went over, there had only been two male finishers. One was Ray McConnell from Waterford AC back in 1997. Then it was Don McDonald from Bray Runners in 1999. Eddie Gallen, teammate of mine, would have made an attempt to do it maybe once or twice and didn't finish it. But Eddie finished it the year I was there. So I knew that there's a high chance I'm going to be one of that 50%. And it's a little bit of disbelief when you're coming towards the finish, thinking, you know, why am I able to finish it? Yeah. Very much so, yeah. And then when you come to the edge of the town, it gets exciting? Yeah, for me, obviously when we came, I'll, I'll step back a bit, when we came through that vineyard area and it was a, that was, I think, one of my tightest cutoffs and I was hobbling in and I, Anto was standing out there at the mat and I said to him, my feet are just in bits. It's, it's, it wasn't the pain that was stopping me, it was going to be timed out. So he had said, look, I'm not sitting up all night for you to finish here so we decided we'd cut my runner so that's what we did we cut the top off my runner and from there I had a new lease of life so I suppose when we got as you know yourself the last part is all ups and downs and ups and downs so when we got to that 10k checkpoint where you leave your crew and kind of change t-shirt for the last time and Anto and uh, Dee Boland would have been at the I suppose 1k from the finish and they had an Irish flag so it was lovely to meet them there so they kind of came in with me and Anto kind of said to me look it's up to you but I wouldn't run this part I wouldn't try and get in over a mat in in a time here take it all in look at all these people out clapping for you just soak it up because it's it's magical you know and he's obviously finished it twice so I did that but it's still surreal as you're coming in to the finish of something that's so big and you're actually thinking oh my god I've done this to see that the people who've been with you all along the journey you know sobbing as you're coming in it's it's quite emotional yeah it's a huge event and the whole town comes out to celebrate it and the yeah. kids are there on their bikes cycling alongside you the cops 
come out to bring you in and yeah it's one of those rare experiences and then there's the celebrations afterwards so how does the race actually finish so you come up a street something like Drake Street with a slight incline up to your you know the famous finish so it's just you're surrounded by people you're surrounded by flags fair play to Alistair Higgins he came out to meet me at the end too which was lovely so got a lovely hug from Alistair just about to finish so do you know it, it kind of goes over your head in one sense and you're still there saying am I actually finishing this because it's the enormity of it and you've put so much time into it and you're like this is the moment how are you meant to feel you know so it's it's kind of a weird feeling and then what happens <laughs> how did your race actually finish so you step up onto the, the mat and you kiss the famous foot and you drink the famous water and you get your lovely olive wreaths and lots of hugs and a fair play to them they have a lovely medical tent beside which they kind of make sure you're okay your blood pressure and all those things I was feeling fine which again was for me a worry in case what if the body decides to shut down or didn't know how it would be so for me it was very unusual but we ended up actually going to the the bar that was just beside the finish where the crew were sitting and sat out and just chilled out for an hour or two you know yeah makes me want to be back there again <laughs> yeah the, fin- the finish is spectacular and yeah. then there's the award ceremony of that, yeah. that evening and that's something special as well isn't it it sure is and you're you're there again looking at i suppose all these people i suppose when you, we arrived in athens on the first night i was sitting in a room looking around saying what am i doing here amongst all these runners that you would read about so when you go to the ceremony you're kind of treated like royalty it's it's mad it's humbling you know and you get, get to meet lovely people of all walks and backgrounds and yeah it's pretty special all right that was one of the big memories for me from the event was the afters and to see how the whole town comes out to celebrate like it that's a big deal to them and the winners of the male and female race they get their names carved into an obelisk in the center of the town and it's done that same day yeah, it's amazing. Now, I didn't obviously take part in the track run the next morning, but even just to see people walking around and, you know, in their finishers T-shirts and the pride. And I don't think you could explain it to somebody who hasn't done it. It's not like, we'll say, after finishing a, a marathon somewhere or a run somewhere, that it, it's not commercialized. It's not anything. It's just there's a feeling about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's not calling itself the toughest foot race in the world. No. And the next day, you everyone goes back up to the statue to have a few quiet minutes and get a photograph. Yeah, try and climb the steps, yeah. <laughs> and then you have that long, long journey back to what? Yes. Very long journey. Yeah, it's it's long, all right. Well, congratulations again. Uh, it was great following you online and looking out for you at each of the checkpoints and refreshing the app all the time and going to bed late and getting up early to see how you were doing. <laughs> Moving on from this, you've done a lot of long-distance races, as I mentioned, and that includes 24-hour events and also the Connemara 100, which is a 100-mile race in Connemara. What's next on your calendar or next on your radar? Oh, it's hard to know. You, you kind of, uh, I suppose I promised myself that I wouldn't come out of this without, I suppose, appreciating it, which is, you know, yourself, you can get a habit of doing something and moving on before you actually realize what you've done and not stepping back and thinking about it. So I haven't really thought about it, but then I'm kind of like, you know, what do you do that that gives you what Sparta has given? And, you know, you've put a full year into something, you know, it's, it's hard to know what you do next. Yeah, it is hard to know what to do next, but you still need to do something. But what you just said there is really important. You do need to take time to actually let it soak in and not to move on too quickly. Recovery is also an important part of the process. How did you recover? Are you still in recovery mode since the race? Well, I suppose the body feels good. The feet are still finding their way back to, um, 
I don't think I'd be wearing any sandals anytime soon. But so I've done a few small little runs. I'm obviously pacing Dublin Marathon next week, which I'm looking forward to. But I'm not rushing back into it. I'm not making the mistake of throwing myself into something when you're on that those high of finishing something. You know, the body needs to recover. If somebody was planning on doing this race maybe next year or hoping to do this race maybe next year or the year after, now I know you have to qualify to take part. What advice would you give on somebody on how to train for the event? Well, I suppose everybody trains differently and what works for one mightn't work for another. I suppose I varied training, so I would have, you know, I would say to somebody to cover all aspects, not just, it's not just about going out there and, and getting time on your feet. There's strength and conditioning and lots of things. It's you to adjust to heat. So I suppose in my training I would have stimulated heat training we didn't have the summer this year that we had last year so but then they didn't have the weather this year that they had last year either in Sparta so you have to make good with the Irish weather. You do a lot of marathons would you say uh, running regular marathons would be good training? Well I found that if you suppose if you're traveling to a marathon and running us you're, you're meeting people you might push yourself a little bit more than if you're out on your own and you decide to stop and buy a bottle of water or take a picture which is all lovely too but it's not going to help you when you're trying to make a checkpoint in Sparta so I would have found I suppose you know I would have done a lot of running of marathons with various people you know and having chats along the way and I suppose them even talking about what was coming up and you know the likes of, of getting races like Connemara 100 is a really special race and I know as Ray had said to me at the end of that he goes I can't believe you're using this as a you know not using this but I can't believe you're running this as a training run and uh, I kind of was of the same mindset I was like yeah it's mad that you're running Connemara 100 as a training run which is another un, you know it's an amazing race Connemara is an amazing place but yeah so I suppose it, it was a case of trying to fit in training and I suppose for people to fit in training is it can be stressful depending on people's lifestyles and home lives and that kind of thing as well you know. Can you remember what the qualifying standard is for Spartathlon? So I think for females, 24 hour, I think it's 170 kilometers for the qualifier for the draw. They have changed their qualifiers in the last year or so, so they have made them tougher. And is there 100 kilometers on? 10 and a half hours, I think, is for female. They sound quite doable, but they are the absolute minimum, aren't they? Like yeah. Hundreds will actually enter the race, and it's those that are best qualified actually are selected to take part. So getting those times or those distances doesn't mean that you were going to get an entry into this race. Yeah, very true. And I think, I suppose, speaking to people or, or speaking to runners, you know, when I suppose words got out that I had gotten into this race, you know, people would look at it and say, okay, well, you know, you can run around a track or you can do a 24 hour in Belfast or wherever and you can do a certain distance and you try and explain it's not about that. It's not about running around a track and getting a distance. It's the race itself, what it throws at you. You, you can't explain it. Yeah, it's a psychological aspects of a race like this that you can't just get from running an event just to qualify for another event so i would think that what actually set you up for this race was not just the running that you've done but it's your background before that where you would have been going to gam matches and standing around in the cold and misery and yep. stuff like that and, and that does kind of toughen you up mentally and physically so you were on the mountain and it was, could have been raining while you were over there but you know that you can kind of deal with that because you've done it before 
Yeah, true. And I suppose in a lot of training in, I suppose, previous team sports and that, you know, if, if you didn't get the top of a hill in, in your GAD training, you'd probably have to repeat it 10 times. So you got there. So I suppose a lot of that would stand to me. But I, I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky I have some sort of mental toughness there that kind of gets me through. And as I said, when you put so much into it and you kind of put your family on hold and lots on hold and meeting friends on hold um, who mightn't be runners and don't understand, but yet a great group of friends of us, 14 of us at home, they were up all night watching this. You know, it's easy to train the physical, but the mental is a very, very important part of a race like this. What do you do to train that mental strength? Do you listen to TED Talks? Any specific books that you read? Can you recommend any resources? I suppose I'm not a big podcast listener or TED Talk listener. Um, I listen to a, a good few, the one select few I like. And I know people have sent me on a good few, which I've listened to as well, which have been very interesting. But from a mental point of view, I don't know. I, I think I do do things that will say if I was out running for four hours, I might stop and walk for two hours. And I really want to go home, but I'll walk it to try and get my head trained if that makes sense or even it's the likes of sitting in a in a steam room for an hour and a half is enough to <laughs> to help your head too so there's nothing you know i do for my head as such I'm, I'm lucky i have a mental strength there so if you don't listen to podcasts you're not going to listen to this one with your own voice on it oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely not <laughs> who would you like to hear as a guest on a podcast who do you think would be interesting who do you think might, might help with improving a training mindset oh there's a question you know i think if you look at anybody i think if you look at for me it's anybody if you look at dublin marathon for instance or you look at park run it's the people for me who are out there doing their first or have a background or have struggled to get out the door that morning or the person crossing the line you know who's been out there on their feet for six and a half hours or somebody who's terrified to take on their local park run you know it's people like that. It's anybody you can inspire in, a, in any way. It doesn't have to be somebody who's sitting there doing ultras every week, week, week in and without. It's, it's to show somebody you can, you can do anything if you just put your mind to it, or at least you can try something. So for me, it, wasn't, it was a case, you know, I'm terrified of, I suppose, doing this, but I don't want to look back in a few years' time saying, what if? You know, I wanted to say, okay, I got there. If I didn't finish, fair enough, but at least I had... I suppose the courage to take it on so it's f for me it's it's getting anybody out there to do any type of exercise it doesn't have to be running crazy runs and I know this is from talking to people it's above and beyond them they don't really understand it mm. they might break it down into that's x amount of park runs or it's whatever it is but to me it's just important to get people out there for their own mental and physical health you know and if someone had a race like this in mind would you encourage them to do it I, well I would as long as it's the right race for them and they're the right person for it. You know, as you said, I haven't been running a huge amount of years, but, you know, you have to factor that in as well. I suppose you have a huge risk of injury and that type of thing as well by increasing things too much. Now, before we finish, do you, is there anything that you can kind of add that I haven't asked you think might be of interest? Not that I can think of. I suppose for me, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have finished it and it's going to take a while for it to sink in. I'm very fortunate to have a patient family and patient uh, friends and obviously working for myself has been a little bit easier and in some senses I've been able to train on that and you know, thanks to all the lads on building sites I used to arrive in in my running gear. They'd have tea or coffee or whatever waiting for me so I'm lucky in a lot of senses like that. That was something I was going to ask you. Like, How did you manage? You got so much time off work. So you just mentioned you work for yourself. Yeah. Are you sitting down all the time or are you out and about? What do you do? No. 
No, I work, I suppose I work in interior designs. Imagine Interiors is my company. I would spend a lot of time on site. So I would have, it would have been a case for me of maybe getting up at four o'clock in the morning, running on site, meeting the lads, getting everything set up for the day running home maybe again or going out at two o'clock in the morning or wherever I could slot it in I would you know there's downfalls to working for yourself as well you're never not working you know you're always on call so I'd say it looked very interesting all right coming in some mornings (laughs) on site yeah I'm trying to picture that now (laughs) I'm actually trying to get rid of that picture thanks very much for your time and good luck with whatever you do next no doubt I'll bump into you in the Phoenix Park or somewhere sure will thanks million John thank you